today we are wrapping up our time in the book of Esther. I, I hope you've enjoyed the journey. I know Pastor Steve and myself have benefited personally just from uh, studying and, and preaching through this book, and, and I hope that you've been blessed uh, by digging into it yourself. I've heard from um, a number of you expressing your appreciation uh, for us camping out here for a while, uh, as this book is very encouraging, and I hope today will be no less encouraging as we close out the book. All right, so quick recap previously on Esther. Um, so, so things have been looking bad, uh, had been looking bad for the, uh, the exiled uh, Jewish people for most of the book. As a matter of fact, uh, Haman, the second most powerful man in the empire who had the king's ear, uh, manipulated the king into issuing a genocidal decree that would wipe out the entire Jewish race. But, as we've seen, through the sovereign providence of God, the king's wife just happens to be Esther, who just happens to be a Jewess, who just happened to get wind of Haman's plot through Mordecai, and Esther putting her life on the line for the sake of her people exposes the evil plot. She exposes Haman for the villain that he is, and the king in his anger executes Haman, and his body is hung on the very same gallows that Haman had originally constructed to hang Mordecai on, and that's just one in a series of plot twists and turns and ironies and reversals in the book of Esther, and those continue through the remainder of the book. So let's read it together. Why don't you stand with me? We like to stand here at Harbin's in recognition of the authority of God's Word. We recognize that these aren't, uh, these aren't fables. Uh, this isn't fiction. This is fact. This is history. Our God is a God who works in history, and this Word has the authority, the same authority that if the Lord Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh and speaking to you, it has that kind of authority. Esther chapter 9, and we'll read through chapter 10. God's Word says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshtanatha, and Dalphon, and Asapha, and Paratha, and Adelia, and Aradatha, and Parmasta, and Erosai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder." That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 
Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered together to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plans that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, And Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might 
and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that this is your holy and inspired word, and Father, we approach it with reverence and respect, and we pray now that you would guide us as we seek to hear your voice through the Scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we saw last week that Mordecai, in the, the wake of his shame and humiliation, is now exalted by the king to take Haman's place as the king's right-hand man. And we also saw that even though King Ahasuerus cannot revoke the original decree that gave all Jew haters in the empire legal permission to murder every single Jew, because that's against their laws, the king can't revoke his own decree, but with that said, now that Haman is gone, Esther and Mordecai have the power to save their people, and the king, though he cannot revoke his original decree, allows them to issue a second decree in the king's name. It's really a counter-decree. The decree allows the Jews to destroy those who hate them. Now, the brutality in this chapter can be a bit unsettling. Uh, For example, we read in chapter 9, verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Or uh, look at verse 12, and you'll see that the king gets word that the Jews have killed 500 men in Susa along with Haman's sons. And the king's reaction is not not only cavalier, it even seems like he's pleased and impressed. It says, and the king said to Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? In other words, man, these Jews are pretty impressive in a fight. You don't want to mess with them. This is awesome. I'm on the edge of my seat to see what they've done elsewhere. He's not in distress over the killing. He's not grieving over what his his kingdom has come to. Uh, Let's never forget that King Ahasuerus is not a good guy in this story. And we've seen clearly throughout this book that he is your average, run-of-the-mill, tyrannical, near-eastern despot. Verse 12. He says, now what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And then it gets even more disturbing when you read Esther's answer. I don't think they talk about this in VeggieTales, the VeggieTales version. Verse 13, Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. In other words, let the killing continue. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Wow. What happened to sweet, compliant, humble little Esther? I mean, how different this is from the Esther in chapter 2 who was passive and agreeable, who was fearful and indecisive in chapter 4, who was moderate and restrained in chapter 5. Here in chapter 9, Esther seems brutal. She seems bloodthirsty and vengeful. 
There's already been hundreds slain in Susa, and she's asking for the king to extend this edict, and she's asking for the corpses of Haman's ten sons to be impaled on stakes and hung high on display for everybody to see. And in verse 16, we see that the Jews annihilated 75,000 people throughout the empire. So, what in the world's going on here? How, how are we to think about this? Some commentators have suggested that, that here we are reminded that even the best of heroes are imperfect. That here we see the dark sides of Esther and Mordecai. Uh, we, we see now that the, uh, the, the example of that proverb, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, that now that the good guys are on top, they're becoming just as violently wicked as their enemies. There are some who suggest that. Is that what's, what is happening here? I don't think so. Instead, we see three very specific things going on in our text today. We see three things, three things I want to focus on, uh, a, a dramatic reversal of an evil decree, a sudden reversal of an ancient failure, and a longing for a greater reversal that is yet to come. So the first thing I want us to consider is a dramatic reversal of an evil decree. We need to remember that whatever else may be happening in chapter 9, self-defense is happening. Remember where we've been in the story. In chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, in chapter 3, with the king's backing, we have this, this genocidal decree that is issued. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, with that in mind, you can turn to chapter 8, and there you'll find Mordecai's counter-decree in the king's name. Chapter 8, verse 11, it says, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. The language of the second decree is deliberately constructed to be a, a mirror image, a reversal of Haman's edict, with one specific exception. Haman's decree allowed the enemies of the Jews to go in and attack and annihilate Jews everywhere, all throughout the empire. It's a decree of aggression. But the decree of Mordecai is a decree of defense. Look at it again closely. Uh, verse, verse 11, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. This was not a decree of unprovoked aggression. It was instead a decree empowering the Jews to gather together, to band together in a, a militia-like fashion, and defend themselves against any hostile force seeking to destroy them. The decree does not give the Jews permission just to kind of run wild, to start randomly just cutting down everybody in the streets. This was a self-defense decree to preserve their race from extinction, and it is well, that this self-defense decree was issued because when we get to chapter 9, we find thousands of anti-Semitic Persians ready to do Haman's dirty work and fulfill that decree. 
Someone asked me a very good question after last week's sermon, so I thought I'd throw that out there in case some of the rest of you were thinking that as well. I, I was asked if these Persians were actually forced by the original edict to attack uh, the Jews, and they really had no choice. In other words, uh, were there people who, they didn't really want to harm the Jews. Maybe they liked the Jews, and they had no choice because of the king's decree. And if that's the case, we should feel bad for these poor souls who are marching to their doom. That's a good question. But, but I think the text is clear that that's not the case. That's not what's going on. I agree that not everybody in the empire hated the Jews. But I also don't think that anyone was compelled to attack them. The edict doesn't force the population to destroy the Jews as much as it gives them permission to destroy them. It's very important to recognize. The 800 people who were killed by the Jews in Susa and the 75,000 who were killed throughout the empire were the aggressors. In fact, more than that, they hated the Jews. Author of Esther wants to make that very clear to you. As a matter of fact, he tells you that three times in one chapter. You can look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Or look down at verse 5. Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Go down to verse 16. They got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. Three times the text emphasizes that these people hated the Jews. Six times in chapter 9, the author uses the word enemy or enemies to describe this people. So make no mistake, these were people who were excited to kill the Jews. They were excited about Haman's edict. They had, they had the 13th day of the month of Adar on their calendars. Big red circle on it. They had it on their daytimers. It was on their phones. They were texting one another. This is great. We can finally get rid of these Jews. At last. They didn't have phones back then. For some of you who are not familiar with the, the Bible, they didn't have phones back then. But if they did, they would be sending these texts all throughout the empire. Now, watch this. They knew that the second decree only allowed the Jews to attack people who were threatening them. That decree went all over the empire, just like the first one. So they knew that they would be safe if they didn't attack the Jews. Don't miss that. But they hated the Jews so much that they couldn't care less about the second decree, the self-defense decree. They were ready to enforce the first one and bring about a massive holocaust, a, a final solution, if you will, to get the Jews out of their empire. But the Jews are now empowered to legally defend themselves against their enemies. They have the backing of the state. They have the support of the government. Also, it's not incidental that, that Esther chapter 3 mentions that Haman is an Amalekite. Technically, the author uses the word Agagite. Haman was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the ancient enemy of the Jewish people who have hated the Jews for hundreds of years. In Exodus chapter 17, after God uses Moses to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery, they are actually ambushed by Amalekites. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says that the Amalekites attacked Israel when she was 
faint and weary and killed those who were lagging behind. What a cowardly act. They were evil and cowardly. And above it all, Scripture says they were a people who did not fear God. So, going back to Esther, we need to recognize that from the very beginning, the Amalekites have had it out for the Jews. And when Haman rises to power, Haman the Amalekite, this becomes an opportunity for him to finish what his ancestors started. His ancestors wanted to wipe out the Jews. They failed to do that in the past. Haman would be the one to finish the job. Haman's following in the footsteps of his Amalekite ancestors, driven by a rage and hatred of the Jews. And so now, in Esther chapter 9, Haman, though now dead, has already set into motion a plot that will get rid of the hated Jews at long last. We realize that Esther and the Jews are not cold, bloodthirsty people here. They are instead a people on the brink of extinction, fighting for the survival of their very race. So, we have in our text a dramatic reversal of an evil decree. We also have a sudden reversal of an ancient failure. There's more going on here than mere self-defense. And the reason I think that is because of a phrase that comes up three times in chapter 9. You see it in verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. Did you notice this? Look at it carefully. Verse 10, after describing how the Jews killed the sons of Haman, it says, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Go down to verse 15. It says, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Or, look at verse 16. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, that's interesting. That's really interesting because if you go back to chapter 8 and read the self-defense decree, the decree permits them to plunder their enemies. They're allowed to do it. But three times the author drives the point home that amidst all the violence and all the bloodshed, they do not lay hands on the plunder. Why? I think that as the day of war approaches, Esther and the Jews come to realize and come to understand something, that that, that something bigger is going on than just self-defense against a bunch of anti-Semite racists. They they begin to understand and recognize that the nature of the conflict they are engaged in is not simply political, but sacred in nature. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, book of Exodus chapter 17. I alluded to it just a moment ago. We can go there now. Exodus 17. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And the next several verses after that give an account of the battle. But what I want us to pay close attention to is verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. 
saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What the Amalekites don't realize is that to declare war on God's people is to declare war on God. To oppose God's people is to oppose God's purposes. And what's interesting is that after the battle, it's not Israel that declares war on Amalek. It's God. God's doing it in Exodus 17. Now turn over to Deuteronomy 25, just a few books over. You've got Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy. And then go to chapter 25. And look down at verse 17. And this is a reflection back on what happened in the book of Exodus. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The the Amalekites are bloodthirsty. The Amalekites do not fear God. And God has decided to pass judgment on Amalek for their rebellion and destroy them. In Exodus 17, God says, I shall blot out the memory of Amalek. But in Deuteronomy 25, he turns to Israel and says, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. He's going to use Israel as his agent of divine wrath. Now, one of the principles of Old Testament holy warfare is that plunder must not be taken. You do not take the plunder. But they laid no hands on the plunder, Esther chapter 9, verse 10. But they laid no hands on the plunder, Esther 9, verse 15. But they laid no hands on the plunder, Esther 9, 16. You see what's going on here? Esther and the people understand that the execution of Mordecai's decree is governed by the ancient command of holy war against the Amalekites. And if you look at holy war in the Old Testament, you'll see that the people were not to gain personal benefit or profit in holy war because they're not acting on their own behalf, but as instruments of God's wrath against peoples that were in rebellion against God. Now, the backdrop of the book of Esther is actually a failed holy war against the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul, Israel's first king, was commanded by God to go to war with the Amalekites and to totally destroy them. God says, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. But Saul didn't do that. He disobeyed. They, they won the battle, Israel did, but he left King Agag alive. And he and his men plundered the best of the enemy's possessions. And Saul is confronted by the prophet Samuel in verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel says something very interesting to King Saul. This is what it says. The Lord sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Now check this out. 
Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And because of Saul's failure, he becomes disqualified as king. Now Samuel, the prophet Samuel, ends up killing King Agag, but apparently there were other Amalekites that Saul let live because you fast forward a few hundred years to Esther chapter 3, and we're introduced to Haman. And Haman is identified as Haman the Agagites. Haman is not just any old run-of-the-mill Amalekites. He is a direct descendant of King Agag, this ancient Amalekite king from 1 Samuel chapter 15. In one sense, when you get to the book of Esther, Agag is back in the form of Haman, his descendant. You see what's going on here? Because of King Saul's failure, hundreds of years prior, the Jews end up in a situation where they are now on the verge of extinction. But Esther has an opportunity now to right past wrongs. Whereas Saul and the people pounced on the plunder, Esther and the people refused to do that. That they aren't going to travel down that road again. She isn't going to make the same mistake that Saul made. She's not going to use the event of God's judgment on the enemies of God as an occasion for personal gain. And when Esther asked the king for a second day to hunt down the co-conspirators of Haman the Agagite, it's not bloodlust. It's not Esther becoming a little tyrant in the making. Instead, she's asking the king for permission to do what Saul failed to do, to finish the job. She wants to reverse Saul's failure and obey the Lord's command to make war on them until you have wiped them out. And the destruction of Haman's ten sons ensures that there will be no future Agagite descendants to threaten Israel again. And while the public display of the corpses of Haman's sons was a typical practice in ancient warfare, it had deep spiritual significance to the Israelites. Any Jewish person looking up and seeing those impaled bodies of these enemies of the Jews would see that as a sign of the curse of God. As Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And there is a lesson here for us, that God's Word is reliable and true and will always come to pass, including words of judgment. God decreed that the Amalekites would be wiped out. And if God says it, it's a sure thing. But it took hundreds of years for it to finally happen. But it happened. And nothing could prevent God's word from being fulfilled. Uh, Not the failure of King Saul, not the passage of time, not the devices of Haman, not a pagan king. No matter what happens, God's word surely comes to pass. That's something we should keep in mind today. The judgment meted out to Haman and the Amalekites is just a picture of a greater judgment to come. God promises that one day all shall be held to account. There was a popular book that came out a few years ago with the title, Heaven is for Real. I really don't recommend that book. Everybody loves a message like that, by the way. Heaven's for real. Well, God says in the Scriptures that hell is for real. That judgment is for real. And it's forever. And yet, if you are here this morning and you don't believe, 
You may be thinking that you'll never be held accountable for your sins. You may think, you know what? People have been talking about Judgment Day for thousands and thousands of years, and nothing has ever happened, and I don't think anything will happen. If you think that, the Bible actually has a word specifically for you. The Apostle Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just as the judgment on the Amalekites was slow to come, but a certainty, so it is with God's final judgment. God's Word always comes to pass. Let let the book of Esther serve as a sober reminder that the guilty will never go unpunished. Now, on the positive side, we see through Esther that God is always faithful to save His people. If you're sitting here this morning as a Christian, the book of Esther is not just a story about how God preserved the Jews, but about how He preserved you. God is so protective of the Jews, he's so protective of Israel because he's protective of his son, Jesus Christ. If Haman gets his way, there is no more Israel. And if there is no more Israel, there is no more Christ. And if there is no Christ, there is no cross. And if there is no cross, you and I have a one-way ticket to hell. The stakes in the book of Esther are larger, much larger than immediately apparent. And the victory of the Jews in Esther had to happen to preserve an even more spectacular victory that would come later on. We have a dramatic reversal of an ancient decree, a sudden reversal of an ancient failure, but the book of Esther also leaves us longing for a greater reversal that is yet to come. The second part of chapter 9 focuses on the Jewish holiday of Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the Jews and the peace that came to the people in the wake of their victory. Verse 20 of chapter 9 says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. That kind of language, near and far, seems to be an allusion to Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen, which is a promise that God would heal His people and provide peace to all, both near and far. Verse 22 speaks of Purim as an observance of the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. That theme of getting rest and relief from one's enemies is one of the the reoccurring themes throughout the Old Testament. The promise that God holds out for His people is a promise of relief and peace and rest. And indeed, here in Esther, there is an outbreak of peace and relief for God's people. The victory has been won. The victory is celebrated. And yet, the end, while largely a good and happy ending, doesn't seem quite complete. As we come to the close of the book, Esther has come into her full royal authority, acting like the queen she has grown to become. And then chapter 10 focuses on Mordecai and his high honor and privilege and popularity amongst the Jews because uh, verse 3 says he He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Esther and Mordecai are almost messianic in their status at the end of the book. 
Almost, but not quite. I like how one teacher described the ending of Esther. He says there is a discordant note in this otherwise harmonious final song. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. This is a tax imposed on everyone, including the Jews. And based on uh, everything we know about King Ahasuerus, the, the money raised isn't going to be spent on education. It isn't going to be used to further the public uh, good. It's going to be used to further the king's good and the king's interests. If the king was really hurting for cash, he could have always melted down a, a couple of those golden couches of his we're told about in chapter 1. But his present wealth is not enough. He grabs for more and imposes taxes. If you remember back in Esther 2, there was another time that taxes were mentioned. In Esther chapter 2, when Esther was coronated as queen, there was a general remission of taxes. Now, in Esther chapter 10, Esther is more queen than ever, but nevertheless, the earlier blessings are reversed. By the end of the book, Esther has changed, Mordecai has changed, Ahasuerus is the same. There is no character arc with him. He's still pompous, he's still self-indulgent, he's still godless. The more things change, the more they stay the same in Ahasuerus' empire. So the Jews have received rest from their enemies all around except for one enemy, Ahasuerus himself. Let's remember, it was the king's cavalier and indifferent attitude that led to Haman's murderous edict to be signed in the first place. And why? Because he was led to believe that it was not in his best interest to give the people rest. Ahasuerus is more interested in his own rest and peace, not the relief of the Jews. And he would destroy anyone who got in the way of what he craved. There is no repentance from Ahasuerus. There's no, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. How must I be saved? There's, there's none of that. And in the end, it is God who must intervene and reverse the king's intentions. God working through his quiet providence. And Haman is destroyed. His sons dealt with. And murderous enemies throughout the whole empire are eliminated. But guess what? Ahasuerus comes out of all this unscathed and more powerful than ever. Look again at verse 1. And all the acts of his power and might are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai may be great, but he's not the greatest. Even when talking about Mordecai, the author is very careful to let us know where Mordecai stands. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. For all of Esther's power, and for all of Mordecai's fame and popularity, guess what? Ahasuerus is still sitting on the throne. He still holds the cards. He still controls and reigns over the empire. And nobody, including Esther and Mordecai, can ultimately lift a finger unless Ahasuerus says yes. And so as the book of Esther comes to a conclusion with the incredible victory of the Jews and the exuberant celebration of God's people, the author of Esther reminds us that Beyond the silver lining, there is still a dark cloud. The reversals in the book of Esther are great, but the reversals are incomplete. The Bible looks forward to a time where God's people will truly have rest from their enemies all around. And when that happens, the king will not be named Ahasuerus. Psalm 72, which Steve read earlier, 
speaks of a king, a king that is a righteous judge, a king that brings justice and defends the poor and the needy and crushes all evil oppressors, a king whom all other kings bow down before. That's not Ahasuerus. Psalm 72 is looking forward, leaving us longing and begging for a greater king. So the book of Esther leaves us anticipating something even more. It reminds us of our need for a greater reversal, one which results in the coming of a true king and prince of peace who will reign forever. Isaiah chapter 57 says, Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. It goes on to say, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. To quote one writer, what we have not yet seen in Esther's day then is the complete fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. In the book of Esther, we see the tossing sea temporarily driven back through God's grace and providence, but not yet finally stilled. That awaited the coming of one greater than even Mordecai, one who would be the prince of peace for whom Isaiah looked. This coming would still the raging sea of wickedness once and for all and would proclaim full and final peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. And 2,000 years ago, roughly 500 years after Esther, in a little town called Bethlehem, a baby was born. And this child grew into a man, and this man, Jesus, did not come into the world bearing the sword of judgment and condemnation because the world was already condemned. We are all Amalekites. We are all Hamans. The Bible describes all of humanity at war with God, hating God, and in opposition to Him. Just like the ancient Amalekites, all of humanity stands under the shadow of God's wrath, and we all deserve it, and you know it. So we've all, we were already condemned. So Jesus doesn't come into the world to bring a condemnation that's already there. He comes to rescue men and women from that condemnation. He's a better Savior than Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai can only destroy their enemies. Christ can redeem them and make them friends. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. That great day where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, coming as a king. But instead of riding into Rome on a war horse, destroying the evil king, destroying the ruling Roman officials, and hanging them on stakes, impaling them on the gallows, which is what the Jews wanted Jesus to do to them, by the way. Instead, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a symbol of peace. He's a different kind of king. He's humble and gentle, and gracious, and he came not to kill his enemies, but to be killed by them, to let them hang him on a tree. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus comes and bears the curse and condemnation of God in the place of his enemies as their substitutes and representatives. He bore the curse so you don't have to. And since Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, there is no more wrath remaining for those who receive Jesus as their substitute. So that the sinner can now be at peace with God, but not just with God. One more scripture for you. Turn over to Ephesians 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. What a beautiful chapter it is. Starting at verse 11. Where the Apostle Paul fleshes out the kind of peace that this king brings. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far and peace to those who were near. That's an Isaiah 57 allusion. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The greatest reversal of all is that God is taking people that are at war with Him and that are at war with one another and is bringing about peace through the gospel. He adopts rebel Jews and rebel Gentiles into His family. He becomes their father. And former enemies become brothers and sisters. Two divided groups have become one new man. This is one of the reasons why believers in the early church were known as the third race. They weren't Jews. They weren't Gentiles. They were a new people. A third race. A people whose identity is not anchored in genetics or bloodlines or DNA, but instead is rooted in Christ Jesus and the fatherhood of God who are formed not through being born of flesh and blood, but born of the Spirit. As the Gospel of John says, to all who did receive Him, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And if you read the Bible story to the end, you know that there is a glorious future for the children of God and a horrifying one for all who have rejected Jesus. Because one day Christ will return and the next time he comes, it won't be on a donkey. It'll be on a war horse. And he will destroy all who oppose his righteous rule. And he will establish worldwide peace and rest and relief for the children of God. That day will come. But it's not today. Today, we live in an age where the king offers a kind, gracious, free pardon to all rebels who will return to him. The day of judgment is not yet here, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this is your moment, unbeliever. This is your opportunity. 
Don't let it pass. This is your time to make peace with God, to be reconciled to Him. God is a God who is kind and gracious and merciful, and He proved it by offering His Son Jesus on the cross to pay the sin debt for rebels like us. So receive Him by faith today. Surrender your life to the King and know the peace of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You that Your Son, Jesus Christ, is a superior Savior to Esther, to Mordecai, to all of the great heroes of faith that we read about in the Scriptures. He is superior. He's a superior mediator. He is a superior priest. He is a superior king, superior to Ahasuerus, superior to Saul, even superior to one of the greatest earthly kings, King David. And Father, we look forward to the return of the king. But we thank you that in the meantime, you are offering free pardon to outlaws and rebels. And so, Father, I pray that for those in this room who have not received the king and acknowledged him as king and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as king and savior and redeemer, let today be the day. Thank you for what you did throughout the book of Esther, for what we have seen, you working in your quiet providence. What an amazing thing how you preserved the people, and we recognize that in preserving the people, you also preserved our own salvation. How relevant is this book? Thank you, Father, for everything that you have done for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.